So, oh, sorry, I've got completely blank. Um, <laughs> so first off, John S. Kelly, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jennifer. Yeah, lovely to have you here. How has your Christmas been? My Christmas, <coughs> now. <laughs> Settle in, everyone. <laughs> it's, we're traditionalists. And what does that mean? It means that we carry on certain traditions within the family. Okay. Uh, from year to year. And could you give us an insight into what yeah. some of those are? Oh, yeah, no, no problem at all. Uh, all our family, mm. our immediate family, live around East Clare. Lovely. Okay? Yeah. So on Christmas Eve for years, mm. um, we gather above. Okay. We have a bite to eat, informal, but we have a bite to eat. And then we um, open our presents. Now... You open the presents on Christmas Eve? Yes. Oh, oh that's true. I never that, that, yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. French? Am I French? They <laughs> 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 they celebrate a Christmas Eve all Eastern Europe. Just we <laughs> No, I'm very much Irish indeed. Yeah. But um, yeah, we never stopped to think. But it started with the babies, mm. do you know, and they in, in due corn <coughs> became adults. Yeah. And in due corn became parents themselves. Became parents themselves. Yeah. And sure, what better way to celebrate uh, the, the Christmas Eve? Than what you've been doing for decades. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what lovely. we do. Nice. And then what do you do Christmas Day? Christmas Day, then, we have the more formal dinner. Mm. And uh, before the lads uh, and the daughter got married, they would all have been young adults with us yeah. you know, for dinner. And they got married and then new things start emerging. Uh, who gets, you know, to have the... the what were the kids? Yeah. Who gets to have those ah, for Christmas? Yes. And, of course, inevitably, you bow to the, the female side of things. Proper order. Proper. As the only female in the room, proper order. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so uh, we, had, um, we had half of the family uh, coming our way and yeah. the other half going... Uh, but did you have everybody the night before on Christmas Eve? Yes, but ah, not, so all at the, at, uh, not all, all at the not all necessarily at the one yeah. at the one moment. It can happen that they'll all arrive at the same time. Yeah, but they'll have a bite to eat and they'll then yeah, yeah. So um, so it was a nice a new baby. Ah, oh, congratulations! Yes, well, and I, how old uh, is the new baby now? New baby's two weeks today. Oh my gosh! Mm. Congratulations! Yeah, nice. Uh, and yeah. so. Was the new baby with you for Christmas? Yes. Ah, oh, no, I beg no. your pardon. No. No, the new baby wasn't with us for Christmas because uh, she had a in little hospital, bit yeah. of a problem in, yeah. in ah, hospital. Ah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. But grand. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's good. That's good. So it was that type of... of nice and relaxed. Yeah. You got to spend it with everybody, which is wonderful. It, it is, yeah. And can I ask then, Dara, how was your Christmas? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> oh, it was, it was very good. Yeah. Very good. Really enjoyed it. Um, again, like yourself, John, we kind of tend to keep the same traditions, traditions every yeah. year. And, of course, I have younger sister. A younger sister is only 10. So ah, there's Santa, Santa, yeah. Santa in the house still. Oh, and lovely. It's yeah. lovely to see yeah. see them getting up early for Santa, go down, open their presents and Christmas dinner, of course, as well. Nice. And go and visit people on Christmas Day. And it is lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really nice. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Matthew, what about you? Um, I had a fairly quiet Christmas, just... Just at home with my mum and dad. Yeah, lovely. And then I was in the cathedral. Co- I'm in the cathedral choir in Ennis as well. So oh, I was beautiful. very good. I was in the for the Chris for the Chris Mid- midnight Christmas mass. Eve Christmas mass. Eve. Oh, lovely. And the Christmas Day mass. Oh God, that's lovely. Oh, nice. That's a nice tradition to to keep going. And we f- Jim we forgot about this man. No, here. no, no. We never forget about Jim. Now, Jim, how was your Christmas? Christmas was lovely for the first time ever. Yeah. Uh, since we were married, uh, we were on our own for Christmas. Wow. Oh, what was uh, that like? It was absolutely fabulous. Glorious. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, it very different. And normally, we, you know, when the children were younger, uh, we would have them always. And yeah. then send they all off and married. And sometimes you'd have some of them and not others. Yeah. yeah. But um, this time we had just ourselves. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, no, everybody descended on the place on St. Stephen's Day. And yeah. uh, there's been mayhem for the last week. Yes, of course. But um, well, it was it was it was absolutely gorgeous to to just to be on our own for Christmas. To have that, yeah. yeah. Well, I had it in Dublin with my parents and my brother and my dog. Yes. Um, you, and of course, you've moved up to Dublin. Yeah, moved back to Dublin, yeah. 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 And like, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, the fact 
fact that your sister is 10 and so there's still Santa in the house yes. and I'm 48 and I still insist on getting a stocking <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> I don't care what age I am <laughs> so thank you to my mother for fulfilling that uh, that uh, request but she also got a or should I say Santa also got a stocking for my dog <laughs> and so she seemed to make herself very curious going into my parents bedroom sticking her head into the into the box where there was just this rugby ball for the dog um, which she loves so it's those kind of things which are your quite mother went in there no the, da- dog, the dog the dog <laughs> went to the parents bedroom to find the rugby ball um, but no just even in terms of Christmas itself because normally there would have been where like that we would have gone to mass the, the night before and then we would have had people come visit and it would take up and so a lot of Christmas would be spent kind of hosting mm. and you know giving people making sure they've got drinks and food and then people go and then the rush to have the Christmas dinner whereas for the last few years we've been able to actually just have it very relaxed and we actually open our presents in the evening of Christmas Day. Oh, day. Yeah, so we actually have, I'll do the breakfast in the morning. We then will have mass, take it very easy. We may have an aunt and uncle come visit. Then we have the dinner and then we actually do the presents in the evening. So it's actually quite a nice way to, I suppose, stretch out the day, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, it was very, I think like everybody, I think most people felt this year was a much more relaxed Christmas because I think last year was that, oh, we have to enjoy it because the previous <laughs> two years were COVID yeah. where we didn't all necessarily yeah. get to celebrate. Whereas this year, I feel a lot of people were happy to actually not have too eventful a Christmas day. So now... Shall we crack on? I think we shall crack yeah. on. So we're going to go to our interview with Vlad Smishkovich um, and Yonit. Now, I apologise, I don't have Yonit's surname in front of me. But we had invited them along because in Limerick there was the um, early music festival that was on. And while most people would think of classical music as over maybe a 200 year span, early music spans several hundred years. And Vlad is a presenter with Lyric FM. So he came in and spoke about early music, about the festival, you know, and also what makes music classical. And it was just it was a really interesting conversation. And even listening back to it in recent weeks, it was just nice to kind of remind myself of all that all the information that he shared with us. So we're going to talk a little bit about early music and what it is. Okay, so recorded documents. There are plenty of those, and yeah. and those are the things that we as uh, early music performers look at whenever we are preparing to perform something. Any good musician would research the piece that they're doing, so they have yeah. context, what happened during that time in society informs how the music was. But mm. also, the way of performing it, there are a lot of documents that tell us that how so-and-so uh, bowed, that's in a treatise, how, uh, you know... Mozart didn't like one singer over another. That helps singers today figure out how to perform music of Mozart's time. Oh, interesting. All of these things are parts of a big detective game. And the detective game is not just for the sake of the game. It's so that we can tell the story in a more convincing way. Because if you play everything as though it were you know, uh, a Rossini opera, it's going to all sound like a Rossini opera and not like Bach, not like the music that came before, not the music that came after, things like that. And I think definitely one of the things with regard to early music is quite often like because I have occasionally listened into Vlad's um, show on a Sunday, obviously, because otherwise I'd be listening to Scarif Bay Radio on Sunday morning. (laughs) Um, But it is that thing of where we all have different music tastes. So you might like some classical, but you might not like opera. You might like some pop, but not but like it's rock. funny, I've never, never had an interest in classical music. Yeah, never. and see, I yeah. have, because I was, I was reared, I suppose, with classical music always being played. And yeah. I've performed with choirs and I was with the Limerick Choral Union last year. So I've always had a, quite an interest, but never really, I can't really tell who's performed or who's composed what. And my father used to have us when we were in the car, he'd drive us to school and he'd play Lyric FM or whatever, you yeah. know, classical piece. And he'd say, and who's that? And you'd go, I don't know, Beethoven. And he'd say, no, that's not Beethoven, that's Tchaikovsky. But it's amazing that when people are so passionate and very interested in their different types of music tastes, how it, for them, it's amazing that they people don't understand the differences. So even in terms of early music as well, it's yeah. so broad ranging. I have a question, a question for you. Yes. What constitutes, for the common man, what constitutes classical music. Well, I think that leads us very nice on to rather than having me answer it, we'll have Vlad answer it. Thank you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I forgot that. (laughs) 
every music was once new music. Yes. Johann Sebastian Bach was writing his cantatas every week and sometimes finishing them the night before. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And what makes it classical music? Uh, does it, is it the style uh, that it's written in? I mean, we call what's called, uh, what we're doing, contemporary art music. Mm. I think what art music might be the, the better catch-all term, classics, yeah. is already a kind of another catch-all term, the classics, right? Yes, and, yeah. and the classics can be anything. They can be the classics from the 60s, uh, it could be, you know, other type of classics, but classical music, classics. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole different category. So, what about this um, new music, early music connection, mm. and how can we, you know, do, be doing both? Well, actually, I think it's totally logical. Um, and uh, the new music, early music connection, you'll find in the performers. Mm. A lot of the same performers who do early music are also dedicated to other types of new music, either contemporary new art music. Jazz, which is mm. a highly improvised, uh, and uh, in many cases highly improvised, and in a lot of uh, cases it's very new. Yeah. And some of, and it also has its own classics. Yes. But yeah. um, you know, there are so many points of contact, so many crossings. I mean, we call them the bookends for that yeah. reason: the old and the new. Yeah. And they fit so well together because they both need this spirit of exploration, discovery, mm. curiosity, a bit of reverence for what came before mm. as well. And I say a bit of reverence, because what early music is not is definitely not this blind museum piece-seeking thing. Yeah. It is about finding the beauty in this sound world, this sonic world that came centuries before in a lot of cases, but it also has to do with the instruments, which is why we're exploring new music that way. So, I don't know if that answers your question, John, but Obviously. basically... Yeah. <laughs> but because I'm wondering... You'll have to listen to go back to Podbean and actually listen to the full interview um, under Scarif Bay Community Radio. <laughs> we, we do that. But would it, would it be an un- unreasonable, would it be an unreasonable uh, observation to make that the music, let's say, of Strauss, mm. okay, coming from the 19th let's say, century, yeah. that the common man was whistling and singing mm. the airs yeah. of Strauss, yeah. which would suggest a popularization of it. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the thing, is that classical music influences so much of our music now. Yeah. So one of the things that we spoke about in the interview was things like prog rock. So there was progressive rock. So you're talking about Genesis at the time, of yeah. Peter Gabriel being involved in it, King Crimson, different musicians around kind of the 70s. But one of the things as well is Carl Jenkins is considered a classical composer, but yet all of his pieces are written within the last 30 years. So how is it considered classical? So it is all about that element of it's the style of music, whereas you might have, say, hip hop versus classical, but there might be influences of classical within hip hop itself. So again, we I myself would have always had that sense that classical music was from a certain time. And yes, it is predominantly from the kind of 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, but yet it informs so much of the music that's being, I suppose, composed today, that there's so many living composers that do absolutely beautiful music that is under the classical music genre. So I think the classical music is informed by the past, but still very much shapes the the future as well. And I suppose, Jennifer, while we're talking about classical music, it's mm. no harm probably to, to play a piece of classical music by uh, one by Phelan Kerry, Kelly Harrington. He was one of the students that came on to talk to us during our live broadcast from St. Joseph's Secondary School in Tulla. So we're going to play a bit of it now, and it's a piece from Bach.
that. Ooh, hello. So that was Phelan Kelly Harrington uh, playing a piece by Bach. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful to be able to actually have live musicians on air with us as well throughout the year. So I think we've uh, been blessed to be able to actually include them in this reflection as well. So now, Patricia Ann, welcome. To Good the morning. gang. Good morning. Yes. So what a merry bunch you are. I know. Today. Absolutely. <laughs> it's nice to have a, a collection, a, a, the collective of presenters. Full studio. Yes. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, this is it. We wouldn't be able to actually fit it. No, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jim, I'm going to hand it over to you. You're going to, yourself and John S are going to talk about, um, I suppose, somebody very important to the community who unfortunately passed on this year. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, it's, uh, we're remembering Michael O'Gorman. And uh, John S. and myself, we, we knew Michael very well, and we knew Michael very well over a long period, John. Indeed. Um, a remarkable man. You know, one of the outstanding features that one associates with Michael O'Gorman, God be good to him, was his link to the community. And he was a store of knowledge in relation to so many aspects of life in the Scarlet area that disappeared and he became the, the what's the word the repository is that yes the repository for so many things yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. believe it or not back in the 1960s late 1960s Michael came in to me I was in the college at the time and he came in uh, and I was teaching a, a leaving third class and I excused myself and uh, went out to the hallway, the prefabs at the back of the back of the old school, and uh, we sat. I said, "What can I do for you, Michael?" John, I'm sorry to disturb you. Now he said, "But I want to know: Could I do my leaving cert now?" No, I stopped. I stopped for a moment, and I said, "Yeah." You can. He was 35 years of age. Wow. He explained that he had never completed his second level education. Uh, times were hard, do you know? So he could do the group cert and then he went working. See, I'm in the fire brigade and I'm in the, in the factory, John. How could I fit in uh, leaving cert in five subjects? I said, we'll, we'll manage it. Come on in. So since he... <laughs> caught me on the hop I'm catching him on the hop now we went into the classroom and uh, uh, and I said to the the, boy, the lads and girls a small leaving cert uh, yeah leaving cert class um, I said can Michael join us and was the universal yes delighted to have this 35 he was known in the area so Next question is, well, what subjects do you want to do, Michael? And he, you know, named five, which incorporated, among others, it incorporated English. He was a man with words, okay, and he had great memory. I won't be able to come every day, John. And he wasn't quite sure what he should call me. Should he call me, sir? Or should he call me John? Because the crowd of facing him were all sirs. And, yeah. okay. and Michael started with us, and it was the month of December, leaving you with five months to do the Leaving Cert course. Okay? Uh, and hold down two jobs that he'd have to respond to should the call come. From the fire brigade? Yes, okay. He did the leaving cert, and it has been certainly one of my great, great pleasures that he got honours in three of the subjects, Fantastic, which yeah. meant he got an honours leaving cert. Yeah. Do you remember? Yes, oh, fabulous such a achievement, wasn't it? This is the guy that M Michael and myself latched onto on so many occasions. Okay, to draw on his store, would, mm. would, would that be a fair comment? It would. He was. He was also a highly intelligent man. Oh, very. And I mean, had a brilliant way with words. Yeah. And he would. Uh, it was kind of innate in him yeah. that that he could, because during his time, he he produced three books. Yeah. Um. He produced a book on the famine in East Clare. That's right. Um, called a Pride of Paper Tigers. Mm. He produced a poetry book. 
um, which you and I both spoke at the launch of down in the Merriman Tavern, John. Yeah. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. And the third book he put together was The Chipboard Factory at 50 Years. He wrote uh, a, booklet a booklet on mm. the on the story of Chipboard together with photographs um, on its 50th anniversary, which was about 2009. Yeah. And the thing about about it is, you see, that that there are Michael O'Gormans all over the place. How often do we hear our friends say, "God, I, I meant to, I meant to record him or her," as the case may be. Well, right? the piece we have, the piece we have first, uh, is to do with Christmas, really, and it's Michael O'Gorman talking about the wren, because the the wren, the wren, the king of all birds, since Stephen's day, he was caught in the furs. Up with the kettle, kettle down, down with the pan. Give us a penny to bury the wren. Now, the wren yeah. would, would be dead he because would. he'd be killed by, you know, those who caught him. Yeah. And the reason why people had it in for the wren was a mystery to me anyway yeah. until Michael talked about it. Yeah. So we just have a listen to it. Uh, Michael O'Gorman talking about the wren. And it was in the kitchen. Well, I, I, the story I got, I got from my grandmother, and it seems that uh, St. Stephen being the first master, uh, he may not have been master at all only for the rain, because he had a good head start on the people who wanted to kill him. Uh, they didn't uh, take very kindly to his efforts of Christianizing them. So he, he, got, he started running, and he climbed this tree, because he had a good head start and it was a fine bushy tree and the people who were chasing him passed out the tree but of course there was a few stragglers and <laughs> there was a wren in the tree and he had, had a nest and he took serious objection to St. Stephen being in the tree and he started making an awful lot of chattering noises and of course you know the way people would look up and hear from the next artery like that I didn't just see Stephen hiding above, <laughs> so they brought him down <laughs> and they killed him. And since from that time on, everybody wanted to kill the wren. Mm. They were very, very unpopular bird altogether, very secretive and very hard to see, very tiny little bird, but makes an awful nice. Yes. So that is why when people went out hunting the wren, you just had to have a wren dead or alive on the hardy bush that you were carrying. So that's the story of uh, the wren. And uh, Patricia, you had a comment there during... Well, it's, it's kind of... It, I didn't understand, and I haven't understood that tradition at all, uh, I must say. And it seems pretty brutal, you know. And the whole thing of people dressing up in some parts of the country, I know people go in for, like, straw men thing, where they have yeah. a woven... Well, it looks like woven to me... Um, carapace kind of thing which disguises their identity so there must be some kind of i suppose shame or something like that to do it's, with it sounds dark anyway own, you know yeah, yeah. and uh, poor ren doesn't get much for the <laughs> no well that's the <laughs> michael's story anyway that he heard from his mother or grandmother he said the other the second short piece we have is to do with lower canada there's a place in Scariff, a little area, a little field, called Lower Canada. Really? Oh. Yes. Wow. Mm. Oh. And um, oh. you wonder how it got its name. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway. He'll explain all this. He'll explain <laughs> it. It's a short piece, so. Yeah. Uh, you took me on a walk once down the Fecal Road. Oh, I did. And you said, I remember it was. Do you see that? That piece of ground down there says you yeah now the postman would have great difficulty finding th that if the address was lower Lower Canada, Canada. <laughs> what <laughs> is the origin of of that little area on the Fika yeah. road called lower Canada yeah well the first I heard of it anyway was that I was told at Christy Max one evening and um Actually, he was teaching me a few tunes on the accordion, and somebody came looking for cattle they had gone astray, and he had seen them be turned into this particular place, you know, yeah. and, and uh, there was some uh, decent citizen like that knew they shouldn't have been on the road, and he said, oh, I know her there, he said, they're across the road in Lower Canada. <laughs> oh, God, thank you very much. <laughs> and you may know straight away 
Whoever Lord Canada was, like, he's no problem at all. But, uh, I just, well, Lord Canada, you know. And uh, anyhow, it seemed that in the fullness of time, uh, I found that uh, during the famine, when Fiegel, well, 39,000 acres of it anyway, of, of the parish of Fiegel was owned by Colonel Wyndham. And he was an absentee, but he had expended an awful lot of money on helping the, the farmers during the famine. And what he could do no more, he offered them ten pounds quit money, quit to, money. for peaceful possession oh, yeah. of their farms. Yeah. And then he'd been moved to Lower Canada, where he had extensive estates. This is and actually in Canada. Job, or he gave them a job, he gave him a farm. This that is was real Lower Canada. Really in, in Canada. Real, real Lower Canada. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyhow. <laughs> A, a, a certain number of them took the, the ten pound quit money, but they didn't go. They came into Scarif because they wanted to be near the workhouse and that. So they settled down in that lower place down there, you know, it's below the road. When you're going down there towards the, the hill towards the cattle map, and there on the right hand side, there's a huge drop down there, and uh, where the road had been built up, you know, as a gradient. And uh, they built little houses for themselves down there. And they were there up in the early 50s. Really? A few of them. Yeah. And uh, they just gave yeah. the rocks out of it. But the county council took it over because they wanted to put a uh, sewage pipe through it. So it looks a lot different now than what it used to, you know. But uh, anyhow, when those people settled down there, the local humour being what it was, you know, the last of Stuart the crowd down in Lower Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was always, from that time on, this would be about. It would be about 1849 or thereabouts yeah. now, you know. Yeah. So they, they did end up in Lower Canada. Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> and you know, it's a good so story, isn't it? a great story. Yeah. I was, God rest my melody, I was, I was inside there one day, I was having a pint, and who came in on it, Jerry Hassett? And he says, I, he had, he had, um, he had cattle in, in, in Vincent Board in Field, and uh, they got house. And, and uh, wherever he was after being from, they were certainly wild, you know, and they yeah. were trying to stay in it. And uh, they got out onto the road. And um, someone had been in earlier and told Mara that he had turned them in there. And I said, said Mara, that belonged to Lord Canada. Oh, <laughs> no problem at all. There was twice, though, two totally different yeah. people. And I suppose there was years between them, yeah. you know, just two events. And both of them accepted Lord Canada. Just like that. Yeah, they know exactly where it was. Well, uh, that's Michael there explaining uh, the term Lower Canada, John. Um, invaluable, that, that interview. I'd yeah. never heard of that before, about no. Lower Canada. And that's still a postal address to this day, is it? Well, well it wouldn't be a postal address. No, only those in the know. Yeah, yeah. would yeah. know where it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Michael, we, we, we captured... By the way, this was done in the kitchen mm. of... Michael's with the Jim and, and Michael and myself sitting around the fire. Lovely. Okay. Yeah. And, we, and Francis making tea. And for Francis us. making tea in scones. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it should be for all storytelling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but we, we, I mean, we, we did do uh, further recordings of Michael, but, mm. but we never did what we wanted. Yeah. To. And that is the great tragedy. So, in a sense, it's an appeal. Mm through the radio yeah. to our come and share your story oh please yeah. please and that's something I, I'd love to do because I yeah. think I think I know there's been several people have done stories with kind of the elders of the community as well yeah. there's been a lot of really really good stories captured yeah. um, and I think it's that oral history so I know yeah. the Killaloo Historical Society are very good at doing yeah. that as well and so I think yeah I would agree with you he, John. He, for example uh, Jim I don't know whether you recall the, the, the chat we had with Michael about New Year's Eve uh, the parade uh, up the town. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, every year on New on New Year's Eve. Hmm. Um, uh, sods the turf. Yeah. That was a great way of kind of providing yeah. electricity. They, yeah, they do that yeah. in Tulla still to this day. Do they? Yeah. yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. The pipe band. Yeah. The pipe band. Yeah, in oh, front of the pipe band. Yeah. yeah. We'll be doing it tomorrow night. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you'll have to get a bit of a recording yeah. there, Darren. I remember yeah. Michael telling a story about a, a parade in Scarf. I'm not sure it was that one now, but. Uh, they they would come up the Fecal Road, turn right at Harry O'Mara's, hmm. uh, go down a little bit, and then around the Market House. Yeah, 
and they they were probably carrying lighted turf as well. Wow! Yeah. Uh, so they came up the market house anyway, turned right, and then did a U turn around the market house. Except for one fella, he kept going on his own <laughs> down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason why he's only one eye. Ah, oh, oh, he didn't see uh, that. No left eye, yeah. so he didn't follow everybody going around. Everybody oh, going around. God. So I remember Michael yeah. talking about that. Yeah. Do, you, uh, do you feel, Jim, that uh, there's an obligation on those of us who are still alive, okay, to actually have Michael rewarded for his subsequent academic contributions, both in oral work? and in written work. Mm. And what I'm thinking of is an honorary degree. Do they, do they give them posthumously? Well, we can explain. We have, we, have, we have one from the history department uh, who's one yes. of our presenters, okay. David, yeah, yeah. David Fleming. Yeah. And uh, w- that if we were to... Yeah, it would be a nice, nice uh, way to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And it would also yeah. intimidate yeah. others, perhaps. Mm? What do you think of the posthumous? Mm. Yeah, I think there might have been degrees possibly posthumously. Yeah, well, there's nothing like announcing it on air, John. Yeah, you know? no. <laughs> <laughs> put the put pressure. somebody under pressure. <laughs> and by the way, the, the final observation. I know Jim and myself will go away this evening, uh, today, and we'll be saying, "Gee, I should have said that." You know, yeah. I should have got that. Well, out. we have it now captured, and it'll be on the internet for the rest of life. Yeah, <laughs> so. uh, and 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 finally, yeah. the New Year's, the New Year's night was a big night. In my yeah, time here, yeah. here in Scarif, okay. Mm. And I can still see we were <coughs> renting a house out the Fecal Road behind Skelly's mm. at the time. And we didn't know anything about the uh, the, the Ren dance, yes, as they called yeah. it, okay, at that time. Yeah. Okay. There was a sound of music coming down the, the, coming down the, the byway, mm. okay. And we had visitors. My sister Nuna was there with us and uh, I forget who else, apart from Marie. And, yeah. And, um, and there we were, listening to music approaching. And this is a farmhouse that was lost in the fields, you know, okay? And in came about 15, led by Pat Thornton and the, the, Grogan, the Grogan brothers, and they played the music. Probably Dr. Bill Lucknan as well. No, he wasn't with them. This was very, very much Scarif. Yeah. Mm. And um, so they, the first person to t- be taken out to dance yeah. was the lady of the house, always. Right. So the kitchen, there was a fine kitchen in, in that uh, rented house. And there we were in a circle around, uh, I think it was Pat Thornton and Anne-Marie. Nice. And they still talk about that. Oh, and I that, would imagine. And yeah. that was 1966. Uh, and they're the kind of stories that I think are important to capture and actually just leads us nicely on to where we spoke in October to Dina McGrath when we were in Quinn. And she was part yes. of the uh, Clare County Council's focus on capturing Clare's far- Clare farmer stories. And it was that element of weaving the stories together. I was fortunate to actually attend the event in Scarif that happened then later in October. But again, hearing from people of the stories of the past and how they think actually things are progressing and changing and where they mm. see farming going in the future. So we just have a little piece from Dina on that. Yes, so this is a Creativity um, for Wellbeing initiative uh, that ourselves and Clare County Council, um, the Healthy Clare team, Age Friendly Clare and the Creative Clare team have come together, put together um, in partnership with uh, the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association, um, Clare and um, Creeping and Clare, so that's the Clare Memories team and also the Midwest Connecting for Life team. So we've come together with this project and it's been delivered in five mart areas throughout the county. So that's um, Kilfenora, Kilrush, Scarif, Six Mile Bridge and Ennis. And it's about working with farmers in those areas and capturing their past memories of what farming was like there and what their experiences are of farming today and then what they hope for the future. And how it's been captured is, so we have Cueven and Clare, Paula Carroll, she's um, yes. facilitating the session, so she is. Um, and the farmers are kind of sitting in a really informal seating arrangement around her and she's just asking them some questions about their, their time as farmers and what they're, what they're doing in the land at the moment. And um, it's been graphically harvested then by a professional graphic harvester in the room. 
Um, what does that mean? What's a graphic harvester? Yeah, it's a really cool new technique. Yeah. So um, it's literally a way of you talking in your words and they draw out images based on what you're saying. Oh, so it's wow. like a visual story. Yeah. Um, so we're capturing that for each of the areas. And, and the great thing about that then is we're hoping to put it all together then once we've done the final piece in Scarf, um, that's next Monday, <coughs> that it'll all be put together into a booklet that'll be made available to the farmers and the wider community after that. So, yeah, so again, going back to uh, John S.'s appeal for anybody who has the stories of the past, we would love to capture them here in Scarf Bay Community Radio. So uh, please do get in touch. And Dara, can you remind people of what the contact details are? Yes, our text and WhatsApp number for this morning's show. We would love to hear your thoughts and views on today's programme. It's 089-258-2647 or you can email the show sbcrstudio at gmail.com. So thank you. Now we move over to Patricia O'Hanlon. Welcome to the show. How are you? Patricia and Moore, yes. I'm Moore, sorry, I'm, I'm giving you the wrong name. Who was I thinking okay. of there? Yeah, Patricia and Moore, sorry, apologies. <laughs> I just for a minute. Yeah. Hey, apologies for that, so Patricia and Moore. Um, so, tell anyway. us, how was your year on Saturday Chronicle? Well, it was... Uh, flew I think past, yeah. just flew past. Yeah. Uh, I find it really hard, actually, to remember the individual yes. shows because there just seemed to be quite a number of them and there just was so much happening during mm-hmm. the year. But one of the things that happened, uh, which I thought was certainly very significant for me and for anybody else from the north maybe living around, was that it was the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And sort of by a nice coming together of how things often are with Mm. us here, um, we had the visit of uh, Professor Monica McWilliams, who was one of the co-signatories of the Good Friday Agreement and, of course, was invited by the committee to open the Scarif Waterways Festival. So I used to know Monica a long time ago when we were all running about together, you might say. And so I approached her to give us an interview Mm. and it worked for her because she had just published her memoir, Stand Up, Speak Out. So uh, that worked for her and I went and had breakfast with her and then we did the interview. And uh, so... What was interesting about the interview for anyone who may uh, be listening to us is that I asked her to explain a little bit about what civil rights and all the origin, if you like, of the Troubles really was in Northern Ireland. And I thought she did a really good job. And uh, so we're going to listen to a bit of that interview, I think, just now. And uh, and we'll see what comes out of that. For our listeners, would you just remind us of what the issues were, just briefly, in Northern Ireland at the time, about civil rights? Well, there was a very unfair system of allocation of housing. Um, Literally, it was down to whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant. Catholics didn't get um, the same allocation. And it was also to do with gerrymandering, that if you had a property um, and were paying rates, you were able to vote. If you didn't have a property, you couldn't get a vote. And so the whole campaign was around the right to vote, which, looking back now, is incredible to think that they called themselves a democracy. And yet people were disenfranchised. They were also large families, were living in very overcrowded conditions. In our own town, there was a slum area. It was known as Kabul, and I write about it in my opening chapter of the book. And stand up and speak out because it's a memoir about how I felt about the conditions under which people were living. And there was another town near us um, which had tin roofs, corrugated zinc roofs, and it was known as Tin Town. Well, that's where the Catholics were known to live. And so it was in your face, it was in your space, and you could not have not seen the discrimination all around you, even growing up. And so we talked about it in our own home. Also, we were very aware of how we were being stopped on the road, and I write about this in the book, about the special, um, well, they were known as, after partition of Ireland, the RUC, the police, came in and there was a, a group that, of police officers in particular who were actually not good police officers and would stop you on the road and if they saw any Catholic symbols in the car such as a cross or a medal or the statue of the Virgin Mary on the dashboard they would reach in and pull it down and throw it on the ground and stamp on it. Um, So if they were looking for the allegiance of all of the people 
towards the government and in turn the government employing the police to do a fair job, they didn't get it. And there was no allegiance towards the Northern Ireland government from the Catholics in Northern Ireland at that time. So that was Monica's, I suppose, introduction to the Troubles, if you like, for people who obviously lots of people weren't even born when all that mm. stuff was going on. It was a dark, bleak time, wasn't it, Patricia? Well, it was, and the thing about it was it had some peculiar uh, personal consequences, mm. Dara, mm. because when I went to Queen's way back in 1969, Queen's University was my alma mater, if you like, and when I went there first, it was a fantastic time to be a young person and to be interested in politics and stuff because it was all happening in the university with a lot of debates and people who subsequently became, I suppose, famous figures for want of a better description, uh, however you might interpret that, were in and out of the union all the time. People like Bernadette Devlin, now McAllister, she then was, uh, obviously the Reverend Ian Paisley, John Hume, a lot of people like that were coming in and out to the New Ireland Society debates and other things. And there were a lot of student protests, something that we don't see today, mm, mm. Um, you know, from all sorts of things like... Like uh, I remember getting uh, involved in student politics and, um, you know, we protested about bus fare increases. Uh, the People's Democracy was born and lasted for quite a long time. Um, and there were some demos that I went on uh, to do with sort of more general issues, if you like. Um, but that was before the violence started, because once things became violent, obviously it was a game changer and... You didn't want to be anywhere around where things were happening. I didn't and do you way. find, Patricia, I, I mean, I think myself that the current generation now don't have, a, they, they don't actually have a, quite a, a good understanding as to what actually really happened during that period of history. Yes, I think that's true. Um, I think despite the very many versions that there have been of what that history was about, that mm. I think that's very true, Dara. And I think the other thing that's surprising to me Having grown up in that generation where people were doing things like, you know, earlier than my own time, people would have been protesting about all sorts of issues like the Vietnam War. In my time, people were protesting about the Biafran War. Yeah. Um, nowadays, you just don't see student protests like that. I don't think they're specifically student. I think they're just protests yeah. that yes, might incorporate yeah. students. Because I, I, yeah. I think the only protest I ever did was when I started in Maynooth University and it was about the student fees. And, and it was interesting, but what kind of put me off getting involved in others was the amount of other issues in, that then tagged on to the protests. So instead of it being about one thing, then there were all of these other issues that were being kind of added on mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily in conjunction with the issue that was being addressed. Yeah. And I think sometimes mm -hmm. that can dilute the importance of the issue that's actually been Well, I think to the that's fore. a good point, Jennifer. But I do think that uh, students today haven't got the same opportunities, if you like, to become involved yeah. in these issues publicly uh, as, a, as a student body because they're busy living their lives, uh, holding down jobs usually to mm -hmm. help to pay for accommodation mm -hmm. or fees. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, we were very spoilt in a way because we had government grants now that didn't cover yeah. that much. But still, you know, there wasn't the same imperative to have a job all the time when, yeah, you, were, yeah. when you were trying to study as well. Yeah. So it was, just, uh, in many ways, looking back, and of course, looking back is, gives you a very different pattern, Hindsight I feel like, great on things. Thing. Yeah, it, looking back makes me think of things rather differently. Patricia, the um, period of 1968-69 was the great period of, of reaction in France among the student Absolutely, bodies. Yeah. Now we had a, we had a family cousin, Philip Pettit, who wondered, he was, he was lecturing in UCD, in the philosophy department at the time. And he wrote about that very issue, okay? Mm. What is it that's so uh, non-reactive among the Irish student body? Mm. Okay? So, while well, continental Europe was, was involved in the major protest a lot, reaction, yeah. Yeah. Ireland was... Do you think it's a cultural thing, though? Like, sorry, I just wanted to, because it, it ties into a question I wanted to ask Dara was, Dara, you're a third-level student now and involved with the, the radio station there. Would you feel that there is opportunities for students to have a voice as such in current affairs issues? Uh, yes, 100%. And yeah. I think particular, particularly uh, politics. Yeah. There, there wouldn't be as much. There would, there wouldn't be as much of that mm. uh, across the student body 
Um, oh, no, definitely 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I would have found that when I went back as a mature student, there was a lot more engagement with politics than I would have expected. But it was it was kind of more the people that were already passionate mm-hmm. about politics stepped up. There wasn't really a sense of everybody gets involved. And, cause there's again, definitely a lack of interest. But there, I think I there's an element yeah. of, of culturally, as I said earlier on, is that we're saturated with so much news and what's going on in the world that sometimes we switch off from actually thinking that we have an opportunity to have a say and I suppose well, change the future, change the path of things going well, forward. Well, I think the I think the extremity of the situation, for instance, in Gaza at the moment, yeah. uh, is a whole different thing, and it's brought people out to protest. And as you were saying, in general terms, more mm. a body of protest for people. Yeah. Um, but I think that you know, there's a certain amount of apathy in yeah. Irish society. Mm. I would say, uh, in terms <laughs> of political engagement and. I think in the student body, as I said, for different reasons, um, students are not uh, as the politically active yeah. group that they were okay. in the 60s. Can I just John sorry, I'm just, just I'm just conscious of time here because we still have a couple of things that we want to mm. fill in. Sure. So, Dara, I just wanted to move over to one of the, I suppose, quite, well, I suppose all of our interviews were interesting. Um, but one that you did, which kind of ties in a little bit of what we're talking about here, but with Bishop Fintan Monaghan. Yes, uh, and just a very brief uh, background to him for any of you that don't know um, his background. Uh, He was born in Tullamore and then moved uh, to Ankaharua in County Galway um, in 1980. And and he was ordained as a priest in 1991 and, of course, recently was appointed Bishop of Killaloo. So I think in this particular clip, uh, he just speaks about um, the future of the Catholic Church and, of course, the consequences... uh, in, in today's terms uh, with the lack of priests so we'll have a listen and you, you referenced there I mean you know in recent years as you said um, there has been a lack of clergy in our parishes and uh, it, it comes as only just would I be right in saying 10 seminarians studying to become Catholic priests in Manu College sure it, it, I remember when we started as first years there were something like 66 of us went in and then the following year there were 76 and then the decline started after that so you'd have at least 40, 50 being ordained every single year now you'd do well if, if for the whole country there were less than a handful mm-hmm. so that is a, a major major decline wow. and, uh, and can, I, can, I, sorry, can I just stop you there I mean what is your perception on that why why is it so why are we so short to priests here in this country well it, it's very it's well there's a number of reasons i suppose and and all of them contribute to it um uh, interest in religion wanes and gets stronger at different times uh, and if you look at it in the 2000 years of the church there were some times where there was huge interest in religious orders uh, monasticism um, uh, the diocesan priesthood became strong if you look at it even in the 20th century in Ireland you had times in the 50s for example there was a huge number of vocations things began to decline sometimes it might be the economic recession and people might turn to church um, so a lot of people would have expected during COVID that there might have been more of a sense of of uh, an increase in religion there was to some degree but um, secularism which is I suppose a moving away in terms of and materialism um, you know that the people get interested in secular things rather than in the supernatural or the spiritual um, no doubt the scandals in the church that started in the 1990s yes, that would have had a huge uh, um, impact on on the church and the handling of those by senior people in the church so all of those things together uh, would contribute to it so john s you have some thoughts to share i have in relation in in relation to the um uh, the discussion on student reaction Mm. to uh, society social issues at the time it west of the shannon was typically conservative Mm. and i was a, a classic illustration of that, that that kind of thing. We found it strange to hear uh, guys like Jerry. Uh, he became minister for defence afterwards. Um, from West Limerick, what's Collins. Collins. Collins, Jerry Collins. Yeah. Okay. Jerry was a student at the time, and he was in constant battle with the president of UCD. Okay. Mm. And uh, might have been threatened with being put down. Oh. You know, for voicing. Uh, nefarious things yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. so the thing about it, there was to hell or to con it mm. 
we were uh, careful yes. in Connacht. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so once you crossed the Shannon, then you were into a different milieu altogether. Mm. Uh, and it took it took I that's it took a generation yeah. before uh, the revolutionary spirit began to cross. Michael D would have been uh, a student. Uh, that would uh, stood for. He was very proactive. proactive. Yeah, 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 he was. So, so that's the Rubicon. Is is there still a Rubicon? I don't think there is. There is. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye. Well, hopefully things will will progress where more By people the way, get involved. the Rubicon involved. was where you crossed it. You the Shannon. You had made your you yeah. had made your decision, and and uh, no going back. We. Off the air, I'll tell you a story. Excellent, thank you. So we're going to now go off the air so Jonas can share this story with us. And in the meantime, we're going to move on to 